We are in the midst of a series on the book of Ruth. So if you've got a Bible you brought with you, you can open it up to Ruth. We're in chapter four today. Uh, Last week, we kind of talked about what it's like to make decisions in the midst of the messy world that we live in. Today, we're going to talk about how that messy world, uh, even what it means to lean into living out the kingdom of God in the midst of that, particularly as it relates to sacrifice. What does it mean to live sacrificially? So let's open our Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We will read up through verse, uh, verse 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you about it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is none beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one withdrew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal And then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malhan. And Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malhan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate And the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word this morning. We come as those who who need to sit under it. We come as those who who may come from a lot of different places and a lot of different emotional states. And we come, Lord, to sit under your word that uh, that our hearts might be changed. So we ask by the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes, that we would see clearly, that you would unstop our ears, that we might hear your voice, that you would soften our hearts so that we might know you and love you, that we might follow you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Many of you know my love for 
architecture. And maybe even some of you know, uh, one of the things I really love is, is medieval cathedrals. And I uh, actually am fascinated by medieval cathedrals, not just because of the architecture. I mean, they are beautiful buildings. They are astounding. Uh, even though I've never been inside one, okay, so there's just my confession there. Uh, just looking from afar, they're fantastic. But it's actually the stories about them that I think are even more fascinating. Uh, the, the planning and the building and especially the time it took to build one of these churches. Just as a comparison, let's just say the Lord in his kindness decided to give us the opportunity to buy a piece of property and to build a church building. The steps would be, first of all, I'd probably ask all of you to give a whole lot of money toward this building project, and then we would start the building, the planning process, designing and building, and probably within about a year or so, maybe a little more, a little less, we would be able to worship in this new place that God would give us. We would celebrate that we would be rooted in New Braunfels for a long time, and we would be worshiping in our new location in a permanent home. It would be fantastic. Now, if you lived in the 1200s, things were a little different because it took a lot longer to build a church. For instance, uh, Notre Dame in Paris, one of the most famous cathedrals in the world. Uh, they started the building in, I think, 1160. They finished it in like 1260, a hundred years later. So just think about that for a second. The architect that designed the church never got to see the finished product. The congregation that commissioned the building of the church never got to worship there. They were building it for somebody else. They were building a church for their grandchildren, not for themselves. It was an act of almost complete sacrifice for the sake of another. Maybe you've also heard me talk a little bit about the house that we lived in, in in Baton Rouge before we moved here, and particularly not the house, but the street that we lived on. It was one of those streets that are kind of throughout the Baton Rouge and, and the south, where places where it rains, where you can grow big trees. Uh, there's we lived on the street that was a divided street, and in the middle of the street, in the in the in the in between part between the two lanes of the street, there were these row of big, huge live oak trees, and the branches would just kind of grow and cover each side of the street. And so when you would either drive or walk down that street, it was, it was like walking through a tunnel of these beautiful branches. It was just, if you've ever done that, it's kind of a magical experience. It's amazing. I mean, when, we, when we pulled down that street to go look at this house, I mean, I was like, we're buying this house. I, I haven't even seen the house, but like just driving down this street, I know this is where we're going to live because I loved it so much. But think about when those trees were planted, when that subdivision was planned, the trees didn't look like that. The people that planned the subdivision didn't get to experience what I experienced. The folks that bought those first houses didn't get to experience what I experienced. Those trees were planted not for the people who planted them. They were planted for me, for the people who would experience them 80 years later. That kind of thread of sacrifice on the behalf of another is embedded not only into the Bible in the story that we're going to look at here in Ruth chapter 4, 
It is embedded deeply into God's law because it is embedded into and part and parcel with God's own character. God is about sacrifice, and he has woven that beautiful theme all throughout the story of Scripture, all throughout his law in the Old Testament, and he has woven it into the lives of how his people are meant to live. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kind of world. Because that idea, right, of doing something for somebody else, that idea of, of investing completely in something that you're never actually going to be able to reap, but somebody else is, that is pretty countercultural these days. We don't do that very often. But it is exactly the upside down world that God's kingdom is all about. That is the way that God's people are meant to live. To act in sacrifice, not only toward one another in the church, but also toward those who are outside the church. And that's actually what we're going to see in this passage here in Ruth 4, is God's people acting sacrificially toward one another and then acting sacrificially toward outsiders as well. So let's kind of dive in and see how that works here in Ruth chapter 4. First of all, let me just kind of recap what's going on. Uh, if, you, if you're just now joining us, the story of Ruth so far has been that Naomi, uh, who is an Israelite, and her husband moved to Moab because they were poor, and, uh, and there was a famine in the land. Naomi's husband died, and her two daughters who had married, or excuse me, her two sons who had married Moabite women, they died as well. So all of the men died, and Naomi comes back with one of her daughter-in-laws, and she meets this man named Boaz, who introduces them, or we're introduced to himself, to him at least, as a redeemer. We'll learn a little bit more about what that means in just a second. And as we get to this place here in Ruth chapter 4, we have this, this redeemer, Boaz, about to make a proposition that sounds kind of like a business deal to somebody who actually has the chance to do the, function, do the function of redeeming as well. Now, that may make no sense to you at all, so let me just do some explaining. And we're, we're going to get in the weeds just a little bit here, so put your, you know, your detailed paying attention hats on for just a second, and let's talk about some background to the Old Testament about what's going on here. Because actually, like I said before, sacrifice is deeply embedded in God's law because it's embedded in God's character. So God had told his people is that the land that they were going to inhabit was going to be part and parcel to the blessing he was giving them. So God's covenant with his people and the land he was bringing them into, they were tied deeply together. So there was this interesting thing about what it meant to own land in Israel. And God had said, listen, you can own land and you can have it and farm it and work it and it can benefit you and profit you and it can actually benefit your family for generation to generation to generation. But you can't sell it ever permanently because, first of all, the land belongs to me, the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. And second of all, I want my people to be cared for for a long, long time. Now, remember, in this time, land was not just something you accumulated kind of for wealth or to, uh, to, to, you know, to flip you know, for profit. The land was what gave you food. This is an agrarian society. So having land that you, that you own that your family could take care of for a long time meant that your family would be provided for for a long time. So there was a couple of provisions that God had put in place in his law in case somebody falls into poverty and has to sell their land. So if a family, 
falls into poverty, and they have to sell their land to provide for themselves, that land can be sold to somebody else, and that family can gain from that land, but they always have the option to buy it back. Secondly, not only do they always have the option to buy it back, but there's a provision called the year of Jubilee, where every 50 years, the land is actually returned to its original family ownership. So if you had sold your land, you knew at least in the 50th year it would be returned to you so that you and your children and your grandchildren after you would have some way to provide for themselves. And then an extra layer on top of that is the law of the Redeemer. And what that meant was that a family relative, an uncle or a cousin, could at any time actually go and buy back the land that had been sold out of the family and either give it or sell it in an appropriate way back to the family who owned it. So again, this is God providing for families so that they will have that land that will last through generations and generations so that they will be protected and cared for. Now let's just talk about a couple of scenarios about how that might happen. Scenario one, let's just say a family, again, falls into poverty. They decide to sell their land outside the family. And then at some point over the next few years, a redeemer in their family comes up. This is, first of all, uh, by the way, optional. It's not, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not something they had to do. The redeemer had the option and the responsibility, actually, of coming and redeeming. That, that person could come and buy back the land and then give it back to their family member or make a deal where maybe their family member paid them back over time. Now, if everybody in the family is still alive, it's pretty easy because the family gets it. The, the, the man, the husband, the father is still alive. He's got children. His sons are going to inherit the land, and it's going to be theirs forever. It's a pretty easy deal. But it can get a little more complicated in scenario two. Let's say that this family sells the land, and then the husband dies and the wife actually has a child, let's say it's a son, but he's only five years old. Well, at this point, the Redeemer would purchase the land. He would keep it for himself and care for it and protect and raise up that, uh, protect that widow and raise up that child until the child was old enough to take the land himself, and then he would give it to that new child so that that family could have that land forever. It takes a little more sacrifice, doesn't it? It's not just kind of a business deal, it's actually a long-term investment in this family. But it could get even more complicated than that. Let's say, scenario three, is that the family sells the land, and then not only does the husband die, but the wife has no children. What happens then? Well, at that point, what the Redeemer would do is he would buy the land and in buying the land would actually also take the widow, and he would have the responsibility of not only caring for that widow, but actually of marrying her and of raising up an heir for that property in the dead husband's name. He would be caring for and raising up and rearing a child who would one day inherit the property and carry on the name of the deceased. It was an act of intense sacrifice, Because it meant that that redeemer not only was going to spend money in the deal and spend time in caring for the property, but all that he was going to be doing was going to be going toward somebody who was not going to keep it in his own family's inheritance. 
He would be spending his time raising a child who would actually take over the name of a different family. It was an act of complete sacrifice, building the name of another, not in building your own name. So now we get back to Ruth 4, and we find this interesting little interaction between Boaz and the other redeemer at the city gate. And what's interesting happening here is they they kind of go on a little negotiation, don't they? Boaz says, hey, there's kind of an appropriate way of going about this. You're the next guy in line. You're the one who can take kind of uh, the, the place of the Redeemer. You can buy this property. And this guy thinks business deal. And he goes, oh, well, let's see. If I, if I buy this property, there's Naomi, right? She's, she's a widow, but she's, she's pretty old. And there's no kids, so I could buy the property. I could take care of Naomi for the next few years, but when she, decide, when she dies, since there's no heirs, the property can become mine, and I can actually add it to my own inheritance and my children's inheritance, and that's good for me. But of course, Boaz isn't proposing a business deal, is he? And we get this great little kind of ironic turn there at the end, and he says, you know, not so fast, my friend. It also comes with Ruth and your responsibility to raise up uh, an heir in the line of Malhan, her dead husband. See, this guy thinks business deal rather than sacrifice. Boaz thinks sacrifice rather than business deal. And there's a beautiful, beautiful irony, I think, here going on, uh, is that th- this man, who, by the way, has no name in this passage. Maybe you noticed when I read this, um, there's a bunch of names going on. It's like the author is going overboard to throw out everybody else's name and intentionally leaves this person with no name. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's kind of like it's Mr. So-and-so, right? It's intentionally nameless. And in this man's desire to increase his name, his inheritance, his lineage, his line, he gets left out of having a name in the story but it gets worse for him. If you actually go to Matthew chapter one, there's some wonderful and fascinating things happening. Listen as I read you. The genealogy of Jesus, when Matthew starts his gospel, he tells us the family history of Jesus. This is what he says in Matthew chapter one, starting in verse two. Well, first verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon, and we're getting to it here, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. So here's Boaz who shows up now in the genealogy of Jesus, not only as the ancestor of David, king of Israel, but the ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah, the king of the world. Mr. So-and-so wanted to build up his name, his line, his heritage, and he got left out of the greatest line, and heritage that the Bible proclaims. You know, here's, here's the truth, I think, for us, and this is what it comes down to for us, 
is that there is great joy in sacrifice. And there is joy that comes on the other end of our sacrifice, but we're not going to know it until we do it. Boaz had no idea he would end up in this line. Boaz had no idea that we here 3,000 years later would be talking about him in the line of Jesus. Boaz had no idea that he would be a part of God's story in this way. He just knew it was the right thing to do. And his sacrifice actually played a part then in God weaving this incredible story together. What if, what if we as a church started acting in radically sacrificial ways to one another? What would happen? Here's the thing, I don't know. I don't know what would happen. And you don't know either. But what if we just kind of got some popcorn together and just watched the Lord go to work and watched the amazing things that God would do when we started sacrificing for each other in these kind of deep ways? Well, here's the second piece then of this, is not only God's people sacrificing for one another and watching God do amazing things through it, but also sacrificing then for the outsider, for those who are outside of God's people. Now, we're not told this in this story, but I think there's probably a legitimate chance that Mr. So-and-so also didn't want anything to do with Ruth because she was a foreigner. She was from Moab. Moab was not a place that Israelites liked In fact, there was a bad history between Moab and Israel, and especially Moabite women were looked down upon. And so you could assume that this man thought, you know what, that's not going to be a helpful marriage for me. It's not going to be a social ladder climbing marriage for me. It's not going to do me a lot of good to marry a Moabite. So you know what, I'm out. I don't want to have anything to do with that. We don't know much about his story, about his history or his decisions, but you know what we do actually know about is Boaz's family, his line. Now, let me just remind us where we are. We are, as as Ruth says in chapter 1, in the time of the judges. That's God's people living in Canaan, the land that God had given them, after the conquest, right? So if you travel backward in the Bible, before Judges, you get the book of Joshua. And Joshua recounts God's people after God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, brought them through the wilderness in Sinai. He brings them to this land that he's promised them. And right there, kind of on the border, is this town called Jericho. It's a walled city, a fortress. And God calls Joshua to attack Jericho and to take the land that he's going to give them. And there's this great story in Joshua 2 where right before they are about to attack uh, Jericho, uh, some spies go in to check things out and they are housed and cared for well by a woman named Rahab. And Rahab does something, says something that is super similar to what Ruth says in the beginning of Ruth. Rahab basically says, I want your God to be my God. I want your people to be my people. And Rahab says, if I actually come and am one of your people, will you save me? And and those spies say, yeah, absolutely. So Rahab, we learn in Joshua, uh, converts to worshiping the Lord. She becomes one of God's people. She lives there the rest of her days, and she is brought in like God's people are always supposed to bring in the outsiders. And she becomes this incredible example of what it's like to confess the Lord and be brought into God's people. She's a beautiful example in the Old Testament of what that's supposed to be. 
But there's also something beautiful. Maybe you heard me read it before. Let me say it one more time. Here's our Matthew 1 genealogy of Jesus. Verse 4 again, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Boaz's mother is Rahab. Rahab is Boaz's mother. So here's Boaz in our story who grows up in the household of Rahab, the classic outsider who's been brought in. Now, (laughs) you probably know what it's like to have the voice of your parents ringing in your head. Sometimes that can be really bad. Sometimes that can be really terrible things that we remember over and over that our parents said. Sometimes that can be really great. And right now, I think Boaz has his mom ringing in his head. His mom, who is not only a picture of faithfulness for us, but who is an outsider herself. And if you were raised in that home of someone who's able to tell the stories of what it means to be outside and be brought in, if you were raised in that home and the people around you probably look at you as a half-blood in some way, if you were raised in that home and everybody knows who you are, oh, that's your mom, Rahab, right? If you were raised in that home where you know what it's like to be different, what it's like to be an outsider, then that drastically changes your perspective on how you treat outsiders, doesn't it? Boaz's whole perspective on life, I think, was radically changed simply by being raised by an outsider mother. So I think it's a good question for us. How do we develop that perspective in our lives? How do we get the voice of Rahab ringing in our heads as well? Here's just a few quick application points. First of all, and this again is easier to say than it is to do, make friends with people who are different than you. Now that can be any kind of different, right? It could be people of a different age and generation. It can be men have friends who are women, women have friends who are men. It can be of a different race or ethnicity. It could simply be people who have a different personality than you. Got together last week with some, some men in my house, sit down, there was five of us, and three of them, not me, as, um, as none of you would guess, three of them are engineers. And I thought, man, you guys are so different than me. We think differently. We, we, we act differently. We were explaining, actually, our personalities. And one of them said, my personality is everything that Derek just said about himself, but completely the opposite. Those are good exchanges and interactions for us. It's good for us to know people who are different, who think differently, who approach life differently. It's helpful for us in building empathy and understanding for, for others. So that's the first thing is that know people who are different than you. Second thing is this, is that when you hear the news or you watch the news or you read the news, try just for a couple of minutes to take a couple of minutes to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. To ask the question, what would it be like to walk into a grocery store to do your grocery shopping and see people get shot simply because of the color of their skin? What would it be like to to return to that grocery store after it opens and to try shopping there? What kind of fear would be in your heart? What would it be like to return to church in Los Angeles after somebody came in with a gun and started shooting people? What would it be like like to be those people? 
See, when we ask that question and we don't just skip on to how do we fix stuff or whatever it is, when we sit for just a second in, in, in what is their world life like, it develops empathy in us. It develops an outsider perspective in us. It allows us to act sacrificially to others because we can actually see things better from their point of view. And then here's third is the, the, the thing that should always be the reminder and the motivation for us is what does it mean that Jesus was a friend of sinners? How does it change my heart that Jesus, the ultimate insider, became the ultimate outsider so that we might be brought in? <laughs> that Jesus actually rescued us and brought us in. How does that change me? I, I read a story the other day um, this was recounted in uh, Ernest Gordon's book, um, The Miracle on the River Kwai. I think he also wrote a book called uh, To End All Wars. Uh, they are their explanations of his time as a prisoner of war in, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in World War II. And just um, both brutal and encouraging and fascinating stories. And he recounts one story where there's a group of soldiers and they're marching from one place to another to go and do some work and they have a tool check and they start counting shovels and the count comes up one short. And uh, the Japanese officer is enraged and he says, you know, if we don't find this one missing uh, shovel, I'm going to kill every one of these prisoners. And they knew he was serious and then Right before he did, uh, one of the soldiers stepped up and said, um, I did it, I took the shovel. And the Japanese officer took one of the other shovels and beat him to death in front of everybody else. Well, as they moved on to the next kind of checkpoint, they counted tools again. Turns out they were just off account. All the shovels were there, nobody had taken anything. And what Ernest Gordon recounts there is something pretty amazing. He said this, this event actually could have gone one of two ways. It could have galvanized all of these, all of these prisoners uh, in, in hatred for and revenge against their captors. But what it did instead actually is it totally changed their hearts. They saw this act of sacrifice and they started acting sacrificially to one another. They started to treat each other more deeply like brothers. They started to share with each other. And some fascinating things happened in these camps. They began to teach one another what they knew. They started a school. They would actually, um, they, they, they would teach, if you knew an instrument, they would teach another people how to play. They started an orchestra in the POW camp. They would uh, share Bibles. Uh, many were converted to Christianity because of it. And at the end, when the Allied soldiers came in and actually freed them, uh, instead of actually retaliating against their captors, they said, uh, they laid down their weapons and they said, it's not the time for hatred anymore. It's the time for forgiveness. And they forgave them. It's amazing, isn't it? What the power of sacrifice can do to transform people, to transform groups, to transform whole societies in many ways. And as we close, let me just remind you of this. If, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this, okay? You cannot become a Boaz if you do not already see yourself as a Ruth. You cannot become one 
who lives in sacrifice and service for another if you don't first see that you have been sacrificed for? God's people were told this actually all throughout the Old Testament. God would repeatedly say, treat the foreigners among you with care. Treat the sojourners among you with care. You know why? Because you were a sojourner. You were a foreigner. You were a slave, and I rescued you. And here is, of course, what we read in Ephesians chapter 2 about Christians, the story that we have inherited. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's our story, friends. That is the way that we can act in sacrifice to one another, is that we who were once far off have been brought near by the sacrifice of Jesus. So what does it mean to follow the sacrificial king and live as part of his sacrificial kingdom? Maybe it just means asking that question, what if we just started sacrificing and we get out the popcorn and we see what God does? Let's pray. Gracious Father, sacrificial Lord, a king who has laid his life down for his servants, create in us hearts of sacrifice that we might, Lord, see you, worship you as our redeemer and that we might act in redeeming ways to others, that we might thereby proclaim your goodness to the world. Show us what this looks like today, Lord, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.